0: Welcome, it is so good to see you here tonight on this Wednesday at the, just on the cusp of summer and uh, it's good to be here with you. I want to say how much we appreciate your faithfulness and giving and uh, just so encouraged uh, by, if you weren't able to be here a couple of weeks ago, we had our uh, annual church council and uh, just an incredible, incredible report of how faithful that the church has been and how the Lord has used you uh, in an incredible way. So we're incredibly grateful for that. I am incredibly excited tonight to begin a new series with you. Um, we are beginning uh, a look into the book of John. Uh, we're going to begin a series tonight entitled Miracles and Meaning. And tonight I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you that um, you are going to get a two for one tonight. Okay, um, there, is, there are basically two sermons packed into one, but I am going to do my best to honor your time and uh, get you out of here on time, uh, but just be prepared. This may be like you're standing in front of a fire hydrant and you're so thirsty and somebody says, let her rip, and you're just, ah, you know, so uh, just prepare yourselves spiritually and mentally for that. Um, I want to go ahead and jump in. We are going to begin uh, this series for the next eight weeks. We're going to be in the book of John. We're going to be looking at eight miracles that John writes about. Um, Now, if you were here with us um, last semester, you remember that we were in the book of John and we did seven or eight weeks on the I Am statements of John. This is where Christ is basically uh, conveying through his words, his divinity. He's trying to convince the world through his words that he is just not identifying with God, but he is God. And what we find as we jump into this semester is that we are kind of taking uh, a shift away from just the words of Jesus to the actions of Jesus. Uh, There have been many men throughout human history who have claimed divinity, but they could not substantiate their divinity based on their actions. Jesus was not only able to Proclaim his divinity, but he was able to prove it through the miraculous signs and wonders that he did And so what we're gonna do over these next eight weeks is uh, we're gonna kind of jump in now when we talk about the book of John um, it's important to Remember that um, This is not John the Baptist who is writing. This is whom we call John the Beloved And so there were two two very different men Uh, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus This John, John the Beloved, was the closest friend, the closest human ally that Jesus had on the face of this planet. As a matter of fact... On the cross as jesus is breathing his last breaths he imparts care the care of his mother to this man john the beloved that's how much he trusted this man how how close they were and so john is called john the beloved he's called john the revelator because not only did he pin this book uh, the gospel of john but he wrote first second third john and he also wrote the book of revelation now, uh, most, uh, most scholars, there's, there's pretty much a consensus when it comes to um, when John wrote his writings. And the interesting thing is, is that most of the men who wrote the scriptures that we have in this book, uh, most of the men wrote them earlier in their lives when they were in their 40s, 50s, perhaps 60s at times. But when we find John writing all of his books, We find him writing, some scholars project that John was maybe even in his 90s before he started writing this information down. And I know for the skeptic, it may be easy to say, well, why do we want to trust the writing of an old man? He could have had dementia or not really knowing what was going on or he, you know, just could have been out of his mind. But the reality is this, is that John was the type of man that early on in his life, he probably heard things and he probably saw things that he probably could not get his mind around. Like he saw them, but he could not process them. And so what John likely decided to do was to wait till later in his life where not only could he better understand them with his mind, but he could better understand with his heart. And he could write in such a way that was very strategic and it was very meaningful. Uh, In this book, what we see, the miracles, uh, throughout the book of John, there are only eight miracles in John's gospel. But what we find is that John was very selective about the miracles that he chose, which means that these miracles probably stood out for good reason. And so, over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, discuss the eight miracles uh, throughout the book of John. Tonight, what we're going to do, first, I want to talk to you in the beginning about miracles and how we define miracles. Beyond that, I want to talk about how the miracles in John are a little bit different than the miracles in other books. And then what we want to do is tackle the very first miracle. Okay, so there's a lot at play here tonight, so um, try to track with me, but tonight we're going to tackle the first miracle uh, that Jesus performed at the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. Next week, we'll be talking about the healing of the nobleman's son, then the healing of a lame man, followed by the feeding of the multitudes, Christ walking on the water, uh, the healing of a blind man, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and then finally, the miraculous catch of fish. This is where Jesus, or the boys are all out and they are fishing all night, toiling away. And they basically, to no avail, they catch like no fish. And Jesus walks up on the shore and he says, hey fellows, why don't you just throw it on the other side? And they scoff at him. They're like, I can't believe this guy is telling us to do this. We've been out here for 12 hours working. But they do what he says, and they cast it over, and they bring in such a harvest of fish that the nets start to break, the boat starts to sink, and they realize in that moment that it's Jesus who is talking to them. And so super excited about the next few weeks and all that it means. Um, But what we're going to do when we begin to talk about miracles is that we're not just going to talk about the miracles themselves. We're going to dig a little bit deeper and we're going to explore the why behind the what. We're going to talk about the meaning that is deeper than just what is on the surface. And what we'll find is that oftentimes there will be many layers of meaning, not just the miracle that's at hand. And sometimes, if we're being honest, um, when we see modern day miracles, it's easy for us to just talk about what we see on the surface. Whether it be a person who's healed or whether it be truly miraculous provision that somebody is getting, it's so easy for us to talk about that and leave it there, but there's so much meaning beneath the surface. And for these next few weeks, that is what we're going to kind of unpack. Now, again, John was super selective in his miracles. Um, He wrote this statement at the end of his gospel. He said, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John sees a plethora of miracles that are revealed before his eyes but for some reason he narrows his focus and he gives very special attention to these eight and we are going to dig into those in the weeks to come before we get into tonight let's pray together and ask the holy spirit invite him to come father we love you tonight thank you for your presence Uh, that is so beautifully here and thank you for the worship and we are just so grateful to be gathered together as a spiritual community as a family um, to really feast on the word of the lord and to grow in maturity and develop lord in character i want to pray tonight lord as always that the spirit of god whom you called one of our not only our counselor but our teacher i want to invite him here in this moment to teach beyond my capacity to teach and to speak to the hearts of individuals the things that are needed in their lives as individuals. So we invite you, we avail this to you, we ask you to bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Now when we begin to talk about miracles, um, Modern-day Christians, there are really two different camps of modern-day Christians and their perspective on miracles. Um, there is a group of Christians that label themselves, a particular word that's kind of hard to say, uh, it's the word cessationists. And these are people that believe that when the apostles died off in the first century, that miracles ceased happening. That's why they call themselves cessationists. They believe that they cease to exist during that time. At Christian Life, we are a part of the camp that is called continuationists. And based on the name, you can assume that what we believe is that the miracles did not cease with the apostles, but they continued on even through our day to day. And so when we begin to talk about what a miracle is, man, I'll tell you, there are so many opinions out there. There are so many, um, there are theologians and there are scholars and then there are people that aren't religious at all that have an opinion and a definition about what a miracle is and all these different kind of things. Um, but tonight, what I want to do is I want to just kind of give you my simple-mindedness. I want to kind of help you understand how I think when I consider what a miracle is. And I hope that what it will do for the rest of our series is kind of help serve us in, in understanding what we, what we mean when we say miracle. Um, what we believe about God is that God is outside of time and space, So for example, we believe in the eternality of God. God is the only eternal being, okay? And we believe that when God created the heavens and the earth and the creatures below and all these kind of things, he created not only the individual creatures, but the planet and the cosmos and the galaxies and the universe. Everything in time and space is almost, if you can imagine, inside like a a type of capsule. And God is outside of this capsule. He is outside of time and space, Nothing that happens in this realm affects God. God understands from end to beginning all things that will transpire. God is so beyond this natural realm. We believe that a miracle is basically when the supernatural God that is outside of time and space breaks into time and space and he does something with things that are natural. Does that make sense? So the supernatural God that is beyond this realm steps in in any given second, any given moment, and he does some level of activity that is in the natural realm, that is what we would define as a miracle. It's when the supernatural God breaks into the natural realm and he does certain works. That's how we'll define a miracle for these next few weeks, okay? Now, when we start talking about miracles, there are are two, what I would consider, two distinct types of miracles. The first type of miracle that I would define is what I would call a natural miracle, okay? So for instance, um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a child be born, okay? But in, in my estimation, that is a miraculous event that has just transpired. When you take a step Back beyond just the birth, but when you think about the sperm and the egg coming together and how the woman's body makes adjustments and how the child literally breathes, even though the child is within a liquid environment, the child breathes for nine or 10 months before the child is born. So many miraculous things that are transpiring in the moment, but this is what we would consider a natural miracle. It is not that God has broken into the natural realm to cause this specific thing to happen. This is a natural miracle, which means it's a part of nature. It's something that happens that God instituted that it will happen, and it is miraculous, but it's not a special given moment where God breaks in to cause this thing to happen. Does that make sense? So it is a natural thing that is fueled by what's supernatural, but it's not necessarily a moment where God breaks into the natural realm in order to accomplish this thing. Another example uh, I would give would be human existence. If you have ever studied our planet, or our uh, ecology, or if you have ever studied anything beyond our planet, other planets, solar system, different things, it is truly miraculous that the molecules and the gases, uh, all of these things formulate a planet for us that's not only able to sustain life, but it's able to perpetuate life and to give us life that will thrive because we have all that we need and then even more that we need. I would take a step back and I would say, this is a natural miracle. It's not that God is stepping in at every single moment to ensure that we have breath, but it's that God has created an environment for us so that we can. These are what I consider natural miracles. Are you with me? Okay. Now, the second type of miracle that I would propose to you would not be a natural miracle, but it would be a supernatural miracle. Okay? This would be if a little blind boy found his way in here on a Wednesday night and he went to our prayer ministry team or one of anybody, Pastor Justin, and said, I was born blind. I would love for someone to pray for me that I may receive sight. A person prays for that little boy, and the boy receives sight that he has never had his entire life. That is a moment where God has truly broken into the natural to do something supernatural. There's nothing natural about praying for someone and them being instantly healed. There's nothing natural about that, okay? And so I would say that the supernatural miracles that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks, an easy way to kind of get our mind around it is to understand that what we're talking about is events that happen that are beyond the natural. They're not things, I mean, the sunrise is a miracle. Every morning that the sun comes up and every evening when the sun sets, that is truly a miraculous thing, but it is a natural miracle, not a supernatural miracle, if that makes sense. And so we are going to focus on what we call supernatural miracles, where there was an event that is transpiring or something that is established. God breaks into the natural, does something supernatural, and then there is a a result that that comes from that, okay? So that's how we're going to define miracles over uh, the next few weeks. Now, what we're also going to do is we're going to dig a little bit deeper, like I talked about earlier, because what I want us to, to really get our minds around is that behind every miracle hides meaning. And sometimes that can be a singular meaning, but sometimes it can be very multi-layered. There can be deeper reasons that God does miracles in our lives or in our world. There is oftentimes a much richer, deeper meaning uh, that that can transpire. And so um, what I've done tonight is I have kind of looked through Scripture and I have kind of summarized the five primary reasons that I believe, the deeper reasons that I believe that God allows miracles, that God does and performs miracles, okay? Now, let me say this before we even get into these five primary reasons. Again, they may be the primary reasons behind God's miracle, but that doesn't mean they are the only reason behind The miracle of god there may be 17 different other reasons that god is doing something but almost every time you will be able to identify a true miracle because it produces one of these five types of meanings the first type of meaning or one of the the deeper reasons that god uses miracles is because miracles may produce faith within believers and within unbelievers so when you read especially like through the book of mark if you go through mark it's one of my favorite books if you notice all the gospel writers they they write to different audiences they all come from different backgrounds and they all focus on certain things mark's gospel is almost as if he has adhd he is constantly here and then he's there if you read it you will see the word jesus immediately did this jesus immediately did that it's almost like he's here and there and everywhere Mark writes in a really fantastic way, but one of the things that Mark does all throughout his gospel is that once Jesus performs something miraculous, is Mark recognizes the reaction of the people. And you'll see Mark say things like, the people were astonished, or or, she was amazed to see what the Lord had done for her. They were struck with awe, and they were struck with wonder you'll see these type of adjectives that Mark uses in his gospel. And basically what he's revealing is this, is he is revealing to us that when God does something miraculous, oftentimes it is to provoke our faith as believers. It is to develop our faith, is to grow our faith. But for those who are not believers, it's to stir faith that doesn't even exist yet. It's to lead them to a place where hopefully they accept salvation in Christ. And so that would be the first of what I would consider a primary reason that God allows and performs miracles. Number two is, I would say, is that miracles oftentimes confirm and promote a heavenly message. Throughout the New Testament especially, you will see this in the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this first miracle that we're going to talk about, part of the purpose was to confirm that Jesus was who he said he was. It was to confirm the heavenly message. When we get on later into the New Testament, you'll see, um, you'll see the apostles, and basically what we understand is that God would oftentimes use them to accomplish miraculous things so that people would believe the proclamation of the gospel. Right? This is what happened with Paul on the, uh, the island of Malta where they're shipwrecked and he and Luke and some others, they find their way uh, to this island. They meet these native people and they go to make a fire to help these shipwrecked victims. And, and all of a sudden, Paul goes and he gets a bundle of, of wood and a viper comes out and attaches to his hand. He throws the viper in the, in the fire. Miraculously, Paul does not die. He doesn't even get sick. It's such a miraculous moment that the natives begin to try to worship him, and they say that he must be God. Paul stops them, and he says, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. He said, this miracle that you've just seen doesn't point to me, but it confirms the message that I'm about to share with you. And so you see this time and time again that the miraculous things that are often done, they are a stand for the gospel to stand on to be promoted, to be launched about. In the Old Testament, we see this time and time again. God would supernaturally step into the natural and he would cause a donkey to talk in order to portray a heavenly message that his prophet couldn't get a hold of. And so we see this on and on throughout Scripture that God is trying to promote his message but also confirm uh, that his hand is upon people. Number three, uh, one of the deeper reasons, the primary deeper reasons, is miracles may display God's power and God's supremacy, his superiority, okay? So for instance, when we look at the uh, plagues that befell Egypt, God, through the life of Moses, miraculously brought judgment to the people of Egypt. And it wasn't just that God, see, on the surface, we look at this and we say, well, God was just being patient with Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go until finally enough is enough. And that's very, very true. But there is a deeper understanding that we have to understand about all these 10 plagues that were literally 10 miracles because it is God stepping into that which is natural to do something supernatural. What we have to understand is that a deeper meaning was served because God was not only judging the Egyptians, but God was systematically dismantling every God of Egypt through every one of the 10 plagues. And so, the deeper meaning behind the miracles um, of, of Exodus would be that God was trying to help people understand that I am far more superior than all your gods that your idols are deaf and dumb and to no avail, but I am the supreme being. This is what he's trying to communicate. Um, even uh, when, when Paul is walking, you remember there's this little girl and she's walking behind him and she's mocking him and you know, making fun of him and all this stuff. And Paul lets it go. He lets it happen again and again, day after day. And then finally, Paul has enough and he turns around, he rebukes the girl, casts an evil spirit out of the girl. And she comes into her right mind. On the the surface, we would say, well, she was an annoyance. And God stepped in to deliver Paul from that. And yes, that is absolutely true. But God was also trying to communicate something to the sorcerers who were making money off this girl, the money launders who were making money off this girl, that God was superior to even evil spirits, He was trying to say something behind the miracle that had happened. And it's not just about evil spirits and uh, God's, you know, power over them, but even God's power over nature. We see, and we'll talk here in, in the next couple of weeks, when Jesus stands and he calms a storm, he rebukes a storm, he walks on the waves. This is Jesus not just walking on the waves so that his friends can say, dude, my friend was walking on water. It was amazing. That's not what that was about. Jesus was sending a message that he is superior and in complete control, even over the natural laws that bind us. And so miracles are oftentimes about God displaying his strength. Number four, miracles are often a way that God communicates simply his care and his concern for us. Sometimes the deeper meaning is simply that God cares for me. Sometimes that is the, the ultimate deep meaning. When you think about Peter's mother-in-law, the Bible says she was sick with a fever. We really don't have any indication that she was about to die. We just know that she was sick with a fever. Jesus goes in and he raises this woman up. And the only thing that we can seem to gather from scripture, one of the, the only reason that Jesus would perform such a miracle is because he was simply concerned for this woman's well-being it was because he was concerned he was moved with compassion because one of his closest disciples mother was sick and he cared for the disciple thus he cared for the disciple's mother and that care brought him to a place of action When Jesus feeds the 4,000 and when he feeds the 5,000, this is not a moment where Jesus, where 4,000 people are about to die of starvation. That's not what this is about. And Jesus swoops in and saves them all with some Whataburger. That's not what this is about. This is a moment where Jesus sees the multitude and he is moved for them because they are hungry and there's no other cause behind that. He's just concerned for their well-being And sometimes... When the Lord moves in your life and when the Lord moves in my life, that's really all that it's about. Sometimes he just wants to communicate, I love you. And that should be enough for us. Number five, and finally, I would say that one of the primary reasons that God allows for miracles is that miracles often fulfill the purposes of God in the earth. When Joshua and his men are at war, Joshua stands and he asks the Lord to help them to finish the job that stands before them. And God, in his omnipotence, causes the sun, the moon, and the stars to pause in their place so that Joshua can finish fighting the war in order to fulfill the purposes of God. That was a miraculous intervention where the supernatural stepped into the natural so that the purposes of God could be fulfilled in Joshua's day. We see this on and on again throughout um, the land of Israel, throughout the history of Israel. I'm telling you, if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you need to do it. It's, I, I don't believe in, I, I don't like going in debt for anything, okay, except for adopting babies, okay? But beyond that, I will tell you this: Israel is worth going in debt for a couple thousand dollars. Uh, a few years ago, we were we were uh, in Israel, and um, our tour guide took us to one of the northernmost parts of Israel. It's a place called the the Golan Heights. Now, I have a I think I have a photo. I hope so, but he took us to this place called the Golan Heights, and it is literally the border between Israel and Syria. And in the photo I have, you can see, you can see the, the border of where we're at. We're probably 200 yards from the border of Syria in the, in the photo. In 1973, there was a war that transpired in Israel. It was called the Yom Kippur War. Okay, this was different. Some of you may remember in the, in the 60s, there was a war that happened called the Six Day War, which was a, a miracle in and of itself. But about a decade later there was a war called the yom kippur war in which syria egypt iraq several countries kind of made this coalition and they they kind of attacked israel and what they did they strategically planned it out and they attacked israel on what we call yom kippur or the day of atonement which is the most holy day if you're a Jewish person and for the nation of Israel. And so these nations that surrounded Israel, they knew that this would be a moment where the military forces would be um, a little less on alert. It's one of their most holy days. Most of their military forces would be observing uh, Yom Kippur and different things. And so they strategized and they calculated their attack. They attacked on the day of Yom Kippur. Our tour guide took us, to the border where Israel and Syria come together and, and we could see, he took us to a place that was called the Golan Heights and it was like this enormous valley of land and there's not a lot there, just some farmland, different things like that. And he talked to us about a battle that happened in the scope of the whole war. There was a battle that happened right here in, in the Golan Heights. And he told us, and I, I went and did the research so I, I know the story is true, but he told us about, the forces of Syria crossing the border into the Golan Heights, into Israeli territory. And he said that in the moment that they crossed over, there were 500 Syrian tanks that crossed the border into Israel. Now, Israel was scrambling, like their military forces, their air forces, their ground forces. Everybody was scrambling because it was such a surprise attack. So, what they were able to do, Israel was able to muster 39 tanks to go and to defend their border at the Golan Heights. 39 tanks against 500 tanks. They were outnumbered 12 to one. Think about, it. consider this: for every one Israeli tank, there were 12 other tanks making war with them. Right. The war carried on, or the battle carried on for for several days, and at the end of it, there were collectively, between the two groups, there were 539 tanks. At the end of the battle, four tanks were left, and they were all Israeli tanks. It was an incredible victory. This is the Golan Heights right up here. If you see those buildings right over here in the background, that is literally Syria. And this area, this farmland right here, is where that battle took place. This is a moment, some people may look at that and they say, well, that's incredibly improbable, but that is not miraculous. However, from my worldview, which is a biblical worldview, understanding the care and concern that God has, the special attention that God gives to his people in Israel, it is hard to just look at a situation like that and say that is probable. It is easy for me to look at that and say 500 to 39, that is impossible. This must have been some level of a miraculous intervention. And you ask, well, why would God do something like that? Why would God miraculously intervene like that? And I would go back to one of the main purposes that God allows in order to fulfill his purposes in the earth. We're going to see in the end days, we're going to see another coalition that is going to surround Israel. And it is going to be all but dread for Israel, but God miraculously again, is going to deliver his people according to the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And so in order to fulfill his purposes, sometimes uh, God um, performs certain types of miracles. Are you guys with me? Okay, we've got 20 minutes, I have no idea. I talk very slowly or you listen slowly. I don't know what it is, I'm not blaming you, but I'm just saying we gotta get this thing going. So um, these are the, the primary reasons that God performs miracles. Again, I cannot say this emphatically enough. That does not mean there are not more reasons that God does and performs miracles. There may be a plethora of other reasons, but usually these five are part of the main reasons that God does it. So it's interesting when we look at the book of John, because when we look at John, it is distinctly different than when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark and Luke are called it's a term we call the synoptic gospels and it basically means that they they see kind of the same things they talk about the same events they talk about the same conversations the same miracles whereas John is a different type of gospel 90% of what John writes is not found in the other gospels. So it's a very unique book that he writes, but it's not just the the content that he writes, but the language that he uses. When these three gospel writers, they begin talking about the miracles that Jesus does, they use a specific Greek word and the Greek word really emphasizes the power of God. It emphasizes the, the, the awe and the wonder and all this kind of stuff. But when John uses the word, the word that he uses to describe the miracles does not focus on the power of God. It focuses on the idea that there's something behind this miracle. There is a deeper meaning. As a matter of fact, the word translated into English comes out a couple of different ways. But one of the translations is that it is a heavenly symbol. So instead of John saying it was a miracle that Jesus did, John would say it was a heavenly sign, it was a heavenly symbol what Jesus did when he raised that person up. And so what John is trying to communicate is everything that I'm trying to communicate is that there is always more behind the miracle than just the miracle itself. There is always a deeper meaning. It's kind of like if you've ever had an animal, a pet that gets sick, right? My family, we've had so many animals. I don't even like animals. I like to hunt animals and I like to eat animals, um, but I don't, I don't like pets necessarily, but we've had frogs and rabbits and hedgehogs and kittens. We've, we've had them all, but one of the, one of the animals we had was um, a puppy and his name was Cooper. He was a rescue pup. He was incredible. He loved our babies and all this kind of stuff, but Cooper had um, really violent seizures. Almost every night in the middle of the night, um, we would wake up and, and hear him and he would be so violently shaking and he would go to the same spot in our living room area. And, and oftentimes it would be so violent, he would vomit. It was just so pitiful. He couldn't hardly walk. And so we took him to the vet. The vet gave us some medicine for him. If you've ever had a pet where you've had to give them medicine, um, you know how you often give them the medicine, right? You, you find their favorite snack and you put the medicine inside the snack and you feed them the snack and unbeknownst to them, they get the snack. But what they don't realize is that they're getting something beyond just the snack. They're getting something that is going to help them more than they could ever possibly realize. It's not just the snack, but it's what's within the snack, deeper in the snack that's gonna be of the greatest benefit for them. That is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about the miracles that Jesus performs. It's not just the snack, it's not just the miracle, but it's something deeper within the miracle that brings the greatest level of benefit. And those are the things that we're going to tackle over these next few weeks. And so let me just jump right ahead here. And what I wanna do is I want to jump down to the scripture found in John chapter 2, in which we are going to talk about the miracle of the wedding at Cana. Now, let me give you a little bit of backdrop just really, really quickly. Jesus, it's been just over a month since Jesus has been water baptized by John the Baptist. He was baptized the Spirit immediately sent him into the wilderness to, be, to fast and to pray and to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. This is on, on the heels of this event. Jesus has now come back into public. He has been around Galilee. He is kind of collecting a few disciples as he goes along. And the Bible picks up in John chapter 2 and says this, the first 12 verses. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now pause for just one moment. It is incredibly important that when we read scripture that we do not filter everything through our Western mindset. I remember being a young Christian reading that. I was like, Oh my Jesus, I would never talk to my mom like that. Jesus, what are you doing? I don't question God a lot, but in the moment I was like, you're about to get smacked, you know? And, and so we've got to understand that that in Jesus's culture, this was not a derogatory term. This was actually a term of endearment. It was a term of appreciation for any type of woman to call them a woman. There were other words that they would use if they wanted to be derogatory, but Jesus is honoring his mother when he says, this woman, what does this have to do with me? And he makes the statement, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of uh, purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and disciples and there they stayed for a few days. Now, this really should have been two sermons. Two sermons. This scene that we have here is is incredibly reminiscent. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or ever seen the movie, it's incredibly reminiscent of this. When, When you show up in Narnia, everything is iced over. It's snowy because Narnia is under the curse of the White Witch. Her spell cannot be broken, or at least to this point, and it's under a curse. Mr. Tumnus says this to one of the children. He says, it's always winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long, always winter, but never Christmas. Speaking of the curse. Now something incredible happens in the movie and in the book, when Aslan shows up in Narnia, all of a sudden as he walks past the snow, what happens? It begins to melt. All of a sudden new life begins to spring up. In this culture, we have to understand that the Jewish people for 400 years have lived in a cold silence from the activity of God. We have no documentation that supports that God was audibly speaking to his people. There are no inspired writings that we have. We don't know that God was miraculously working on any level, but all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the dead of silence, in the cold silence, and he shows up to perform a miracle. And all of a sudden, the coldness of people's hearts who have never seen anything like this, all of a sudden, there's a tenderization that begins to happen to the souls of people. And they are on the cusp of something new that is going to breed incredible life. And all of this begins with this miracle here in Cana. Now, I'm going to jump ahead, and I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about questions that we need to ask about this miracle that happens in Canaan. The, the number one question that we have to ask is this, is what is the greater meaning? This is the heart of what we're gonna talk about. Beyond this are more uh, speculative questions, things that, that it would be good and helpful for us to consider. But I wanna talk about the greater meanings of the miracle that happened with Jesus. And number one, I would say this, is that the miracle is an expression of Jesus's authority over creation. God Almighty alone reserves the right to create new things. There has never been a human being. There has never been an angelic host. Lucifer himself has never created anything from nothing. That is a right that has been reserved for God Almighty, now Satan can corrupt things that have been created. He can duplicate, which he is a master of duplication and counterfeiting. He can duplicate things that have been created, but he can never create new things. In this moment, what Jesus is doing when he creates new wine as his first miracle, he is associating himself with the very first words that we find in Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God Created. In this moment, Jesus sees water but created wine. And Jesus is associating himself with the Father in revealing that he is God because he possesses the power to create things out of nothing. And so Jesus is obviously exercising, expressing his authority over creation. But number two, Jesus, on a very natural level, is that Jesus does this miracle so that he can ease the burden of the family of the wedding. Mary comes to him. Clearly, Mary is involved somehow in the wedding planning. I don't know if she's a part of the family or a close friend, but somehow she knows that they've run out of wine before anybody else. And she comes to Jesus privately, and she says, listen, we got a problem. And the reality is this. In in Jewish culture, um, oftentimes weddings usually would happen on Wednesday afternoons. But that Jewish wedding would extend from Wednesday to the next Tuesday. It would be a seven-day celebration, and they would go, and they would fix up the bride, and they would take her over to the groom's house, and the groom would be all dolled up, and they would take them as a couple, and they would kind of parade them around Cana, and they would expose them to all their friends. Their friends would bring gifts, and then ultimately they would end back at the bridegroom's house at his residence, and they would have the celebration of all celebrations. They would have food. Obviously, they would have wine, all of these type of delicacies, dancing, celebration. They would have all of these things. But all of a sudden in this episode, the wine runs out. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't give us any indication why the the wine runs out. We don't know if there too many people showed up. We don't know if the, the bridegroom didn't prepare well enough. We don't really know what it is. But Jesus sees a need in the moment, and this is what's interesting about it. When you dig in a little bit and you understand the Jewish culture, you understand a little bit better that weddings were incredibly highly esteemed events that were representative of the family. If there was a wedding feast and it went well, it was a good mark for that family in their social settings. If the wedding celebration did not go well, it was not a good mark for them. And so Jesus sees this need where these people are about to be humiliated in front of everyone. And Jesus steps in just to simply ease the burden of these people. And he does this miraculous thing uh, for them. Number three, I would say that the miracle is also about Jesus establishing belief in the hearts of the disciples. At this point, we we can only figure out that Jesus has five or maybe six disciples that are following him in this moment. They know that there is something unique about Jesus. He literally has spoken to them, leave your business, follow me. The anointing and the strength, the the supernatural power that accompanied those words compelled those men to leave. They hadn't seen Jesus do anything miraculous, but it compelled them. And I'm sure from time to time as they were walking from Galilee to Cana, that the thought crossed their mind, what have I done following this man and leaving my family in dire straits? What have I done? But now all of a sudden they show up at this this wedding feast the wine is out nobody really knows what's going on but the servants and the disciples they see this incredible feat that happens before their eyes and the bible says that when they saw this then they believed in him and so it was all about establishing belief in their hearts number four and finally i would say that this miracle was also about exhibiting the glory of God. You remember a few years ago, if you lived here a few years ago, um, when we had the thousand year flood, remember that? And um, so many people lost so much, it was, it was just, it was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, my, my family and I, we live uh, out near Lexington and we live kind of close to the dam. And I remember watching on the news, they were saying that the waters, that it had rained so much that the waters at the dam were like, they were concerned that the, the, the dam was gonna implode, that it was gonna break open. And so they did something that I can't remember if they said they hadn't done in 50 or 60 years, but they, they basically opened the hatches to relieve the water of the pressure so that the wall or the dam didn't implode and, and basically destroy everything. When I, when I think about Jesus in this moment, the Bible says that he manifested his glory, that he released his glory. Throughout later on, you'll see in scripture where Jesus stands before, before Moses and Elijah and a couple of the disciples, and his glory is manifested. It is released in that moment. It gives me the mental image of a dam that is brimming with water, and if it doesn't release some of what's inside of it, it's going to implode. I can't imagine the full divinity of God Almighty being encapsulated in a human fleshly body, needing from time to time just a release of his glory, just a manifestation of his glory. The times when the woman would come and not even knowns to him would touch the hem of his garment, and he would say, something just left me right this was a release of the glory of god and in this moment we see the manifestation of his glory which not only which not only led the disciples to believe that jesus was divine but the bible says it led them to believe in his name you see a miracle its primary purpose its primary purpose is to reveal god to the lost that's the primary purpose of a miracle. But it's not just to reveal God to the lost. Every miracle demands some type of response. Every, every, John calls them, he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. Because what John is saying is that this miracle isn't just a miracle, it's a miracle that points to something greater than just the miracle. And the first thing it points to is the divinity of who Jesus is and then maybe a few other things. And so we have to understand as we go through these next few weeks that all of these things, as incredible as they are, are not just about the events in and of themselves. There's something deeper, there's something more meaningful, there's something richer, and God has something richer for us. And my prayer is that as we press into this that our hearts will grow a little more sensitive to the miraculous nature of God and may God open the heavens and show us greater levels of the miraculous in our day. Amen. I appreciate you being so patient tonight. You can read through the rest of the notes. There's probably another hour's worth of teaching there. I'm so sorry for my failure no, of planning. I want to pray for you tonight before you're released. Father, I thank you tonight for your goodness. I'm so thankful there is, there is so much in scripture that breathes new life into us. My prayer, Lord, as we begin to dig out these miracles and see the workings of your spirit, my prayer, God, is that you will help us to touch you at a deeper level. I pray, Lord, that you will impart a new level of faith to us, an extra measure of faith, an extra measure of belief and hope that you will do all the things that you said you would do for us. Father, fulfill your promises in this house. Do your miraculous work. When you look on this house, may you find a people that are willing and hungry, full of faith, believing that you're ready to do something powerful. I pray your blessing over your people in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.